John 20, verse 19 through 29. Here's the word of the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. I want to read a poem to start from the British poet Malcolm Gite called A Sonnet for St. Thomas the Apostle. We do not know. How can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question, you spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. O oh, doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him and find him in the flesh. Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted you your wish. Oh, place my hands with yours. Help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. Holy Spirit, would you begin to speak now? And would our ears be open to what you have to say to us today? Would you hide me behind the cross? And would you reveal yourself in a new way today to those in this room? I pray for transformation. I pray for encounter. I pray that we would receive your goodness and your love in this moment. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. A defining characteristic of our age is that of doubt and deconstruction. All of you are antsy on the edge of your seat with the mention of such a word. Two very familiar words in our postmodern vernacular in particular, especially within Christianity. I even noted this week that when you go on Google and just type in deconstruction before you're even done, the first search is deconstructing Christianity. It's the first search. From Twitter feeds to TikTok videos to blog posts to former influential Christian rock stars outright denouncing their former Christian faith, these two words and ideas seem to mark 
the moment that we live in and are very real for all of us. They can be utterly polarizing and divisive when not handled thoughtfully. They can be both idolized on one end and disregarded on the other, if not handled with humility. But what if I told you today that doubt in particular is fundamentally a part of the human experience? Every single one of us will experience at some point doubt. If you haven't yet, you have a date with doubt in the future. It is fundamentally a part of the human experience and condition. But not just the Christian experience, not just the evangelical experience, the human experience. At some point, every one of us will experience a level of doubt and possibly a degree of deconstruction. Now, doubt, if you're curious about the definition, doubt is defined as a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. A word to underline, I think, there is feeling, feeling. A lack of confidence, uncertainty or belief or opinion that often interferes with decision-making, which I found to be intriguing. Doubt is a feeling of hesitation. And today, we are looking at this very real human experience from the post-resurrection encounter of Jesus and Thomas. And if doubt and or deconstruction describes your current life experience at all or your journey, I believe that there is actual gold in this story for how not to navigate and for how to navigate at the same time. Now, quick disclaimer for all of you. I have my own and have gone through my own doubts and wrestling with various ideas, beliefs, traditions, and doctrines. I'm a millennial pastor's kid who grew up watching Bible Man and listening to Reliant K. So it's a miracle that I follow Jesus right now. If you don't know, now you know, okay? There's a lot to unpack there for me, um, but there's also a lot to be thankful for, a lot to be grateful for. My intention for approach today, just so we're clear, is twofold. One, it is to be from a place of compassion, place of compassion and care. If you don't feel compassion today, then I apologize. And I want to know afterwards if you don't feel compassion. The second is to come from a place of challenge. Notice I didn't say comfort, but compassion and challenge. I want to care for you, but I also want to challenge you and be challenged at the same time. I hope that uh, after this teaching, it feels emotionally and spiritually like you just got a massage. Anybody like getting massages? It's a spiritual discipline, um, if you did not know. Ancient practice of the church. It's, uh, I'm just kidding. It's actually not. Um, some of you are like, really? Um, man, I need to really be doing my disciplines. Um, I love getting massages. I'll be honest. I love being pampered. It's just something that, you know, really makes me feel good, I guess. I don't know. Um, I've gotten a handful of my life. But if you haven't gotten a massage in a long time and you go and get one, you love it. But man, are you sore. Like the rest of the day, you're like hunched over and sore. And it's, it's interesting because you feel both relief and soreness at the same time. And I hope that after today, you are sore, but you do feel a sense of relief. That's my hope, and that's kind of my aim. So just know where I'm kind of coming from. Now also, 
because this is such a large topic, and I only have a few minutes with you this morning, um, there are a few books that I do recommend for those of you who want to explore more that I think are helpful in navigating this conversation. And I'm coming from three different angles of, um, I don't know, suggestion. The first is a book by a theologian named A.J. Swoboda called After Doubt. The subtitle is How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. This book radically changed my life a few years ago. It's phenomenal, okay? I read the whole thing. Um, The second book is called Perhaps, and I'm recommending this one because I'm actually friends with the author, okay? Uh, Josh McNall is a friend of mine, and the subtitle is Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism. You're already intrigued, I know. The third is a book that I have not yet read, but a lot of you have read and have recommended it to me by someone we love. His name is Tyler Staten, and it's called Searching for Enough, The High Wire Walk Between Doubt and Faith. So these are three different reads. If you want to explore this topic more, I would recommend checking out some of these. And they're coming from different angles, all right? Um, But check those out later on. We actually do have, I will say, uh, a handful of A.J. Swoboda's books in our community room. If you'd like to buy one today, we'd love for you to to have one, all right? Um, So here we have this story after the resurrection where the disciples are terrified, the door locked, hanging out in a room somewhere in uh, Judea. We're not quite sure where. Uh, There's a good chance that they are somewhere back around Galilee at this point. And Jesus shows up. I mean, hello, this dude walks through the door, you know, door doesn't even open or close. He's just, boom, there he is, you know. Um, And a little little bit terrifying, I'm not going to lie. Like this past week, I was actually working on my sermon, sitting back here in the office on the chair, and there's a window back here, and I saw a shadow behind me. And I was, like, terrified. What is happening right now? And I turned around, and Dylan Mendez is here asking to get in the door because the door's locked. But I was terrified. I was like, whoa, what are you doing, you know? Can you imagine being in this moment? Jesus just, boom, out of nowhere. There he is. What are you doing, man? Um, shows up, and he's like, peace be with you, you know? Don't know how Jesus talked. I'm thinking it's a mix between Morgan Freeman and Bob Ross. That's my guess. That's my guess. Uh, he shows up, peace be with you. All right, cool, it sounds great. But... Tommy's not there. Tommy's not hanging out with the disciples. He's got some errands that he had to run. He had to go to the grocery store. He had some things he had to do. He's not there. And they're like, oh, Tommy, we just saw Jesus. He's like, no, you didn't. I'm not going to believe you. Are you kidding me? The dude's dead. He's dead. Even though there were some women earlier that, that proclaimed the gospel, to these disciples, and I'm like, no, 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 he's, he's, he's dead. He's not, he's not alive. And then a week goes by, and uh, it's Sunday again, and Jesus shows up again. What's up? Guys, peace be with you. And Thomas is there. And Thomas is like, whoa, this is wild. They were right. Actually, they were correct. Um, but I need, I need to touch you. Can I touch you? And, and, and it's like Jesus just takes his hand and just pulls his hand to his side. In that moment, he, he, he gives the first high Christological proclamation that Jesus is not just Messiah, but he's God incarnate. And then that's kind of the end of the story. That is the moment that we're looking at today. Now, one of the things that we need to get out of the way in terms of this narrative is I would encourage us to never call Thomas doubting Thomas. Never call him Doubting Thomas. Do not give him that label or identity because it isn't in the text. It's nowhere in the text. I will go as far as saying Thomas isn't a doubter. Thomas simply doubts. And there is a vast difference between being a doubter and doubting, or doubting and being cynical. Two different things. Doubt, as mentioned earlier, is a feeling, primarily. But cynicism is an attitude. Skepticism is an attitude. It actually describes your character to some degree. 
It is a posture that we take. So we need to stop calling people who doubt cynics. Stop calling people who have questions skeptics. And we need to stop using doubt to mask a posture of cynicism. Some of you today, you need the space to feel doubt. And you've never had it before in the local church. And you need that space. And some of us need to repent from valorizing doubt as though it is cavalier. As though it should be honored that one doubts. I'm pretty sure if you're doubting, it's not a fun experience. It's not something to be valorized. But once doubt does become valorized, it can become cynicism and skepticism very quickly. Now, um, anyone in here ever have FOMO? Does anyone know what FOMO is? If you're under the age of 40, you know what FOMO is. If you're over 40, you're like, FOMO? What is FOMO? These young whippersnappers, they're all wild and crazy with their terms. You know, FOMO just means the fear of missing out. And I have FOMO a lot. I'm an extrovert. I love being with people. I love having fun. I love a good time. I love jokes. I love doing things together. And if I hear of an event happening or something going on or a group getting together that I can't be a part of, I have immense FOMO. I miss out. And maybe for you, you, there was an event going on or some kind of get-together, and guess what? You had to work. Man, that's tough, isn't it? You're like, I wish I could be there and celebrating, but I got to work because I work retail, and the hours are terrible, right? Or, or I got a kid at home, and I can't leave the house. I haven't left the house in three weeks. I got FOMO. I want to be with some people. We all struggle with FOMO at some point, unless you're my wife. She just wants to be by herself in the woods with Jesus. Because <laughs> she's, she's afraid of missing out on Jesus. That's, that's her biggest issue, right? Uh, but in this moment, th- there's something very interesting that has happened. Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus first showed up. The text literally reads, Thomas was not with the others when Jesus came. He was not there. So could it be that the seed of Thomas's doubt was simply that he missed out on the experience that everyone else had? All his friends saw Jesus, but he didn't. Thomas wasn't there. He missed out. Many times, our doubt can be traced back to moments where we perceive to have missed out on something or some aspect of God that we were supposed to experience because everyone else did. Why does everyone else get to be married, but not me? Why does it seem like all my friends have incredible jobs? And I can't even get one. Why is it that all my friends have stable family life and their family of origin looks so well put together? But not mine. Mine's a wreck, man. Why why do all my friends get accolades? Or, Or why do they get to be healed and not me? Why do they get to experience the blessing of the Lord and not me? I've been slaving away for the last three decades, man. I'm still over here grinding. And they get to experience favor? Not me? Why do they get the opportunity? Not not me. We begin to get this sense that Jesus is holding out on us. That he is withholding his goodness to some degree. He is withholding his promises from us. And, And this was the temptation in the garden. And it was the temptation Jesus faced in the desert as well. The enemy 
friends, will try to deceive you into thinking that you are missing out on a deeper fullness. Yet, when he tempts our primordial parents in the garden and he tempts Jesus, he offers them something that they actually already possess. The enemy looks at Adam and Eve and says, you can be like God. They already are. The enemy looks at Jesus and is like, you can have all of this. You can be Lord over all of this. He already is. The enemy will tempt you with something that in your cognitive mind you think you don't have, but in actuality you already possess. You might not can see it on the surface, but underneath it, you actually do possess it. And so the place where you think today that you are missing out might be the place where you are already fulfilled. Security. Got it. Refuge, security in Christ. Intimacy. Can't beat it. You've got it. Stability. You've got it. Death has been conquered. No matter how unstable this life is, you have stability because death has been conquered. Value. Worth. You don't need your job to look at you and call you valuable. Jesus, the eternal son of God, calls you valuable. The father calls you valuable. Wholeness and peace. No matter your family dynamic, you have been made and called whole because of Christ. Purpose. You've been given a vocational call to participate and have been given purpose. John 1.16 says, from his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. Now, you don't have to believe that but you at least have to acknowledge the text. You don't have to believe that you've received blessing after one blessing after another, but you have to at least acknowledge that it's in the text and wrestle with that. So Thomas's process, we can assume, I can assume, begins by thinking he has missed out. second unfolding of Thomas's doubt is in him putting guidelines around what Jesus must do in order for him to believe. Verse 24 and 25, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, also called Didymus, which by the way, what a terrible name. You want to struggle with doubt? If your name's Didymus, you're going to struggle. I'm just saying. (laughs) One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, he was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. They literally preached the gospel. But he replied, I won't believe it unless. Unless. Go ahead, highlight it, underline it in your Bible. Circle it, underline it, highlight it, unless. Tim Keller says, there are virtually two kinds of doubt. One is, I don't get it, or I don't understand it. Two is, I don't like it. I don't like it. Not a fan. It's two kinds of doubt. But here, Thomas is essentially drawing up a cognitive contract with God. If you do this, then I will. If you do X, I will do Y. He is entering into a mathematical equation with the creator of the world. If you do X, I will do Y. He's entered into a contract. Now, here's the thing. In marriage with my wife, I don't look at her and say, I won't love you unless. And if I did, it probably wouldn't go very well with Jordan. (laughs) Or, or I will love you, I will, I will, if. Or I won't believe in you until. 
or unless you blank, I won't choose you. Don't do that. Do you know what that's actually called? That's called a prenup. And Thomas is trying to make a prenup with God. I won't believe unless this happens. I won't choose you unless. Thomas does some things right in this story. But there are some things that he does wrong. And I think one of those things is when he creates an ultimatum with God. And one of the greatest dangers that we can face is when we begin to create contracts with the creator of the universe. I will only follow if. Or I can't believe in a God who blank. How often have you heard that before? Or have you said that? I can't believe in a God who blank. Now we're making contracts with the creator of the cosmos. We're entering into a prenup. And what God wants is covenant, not a prenuptial contract. This can, if we aren't careful, tempt us into molding God in our own image. We want him to be like us rather than us becoming like him often. In the psychology world, this is called projection. We project ourselves onto him when we are actually meant to be a projection of him. Listen, we don't follow Jesus because he is like us. We follow because he is, in fact, a resurrected king and God of the universe. He just simply demonstrates that we can trust him. I heard a story this past week of a, of a professor had a conversation with a student after his class, and uh, she comes up to him and she's like, I just think, you know, she's like 18, 19 years old. I just think that God has evolved. Okay. She starts explaining why and what God has evolved into. And at the end of the conversation, the, the professor's like, I got a question. Has God evolved or have you? Has God evolved or have you evolved? If we aren't careful, we begin to make God look like us versus us look like him. And here's the thing. If everything that Jesus thinks is exactly what you think, then you aren't following Jesus. You are following yourself. And you're turning Jesus into an action figure. I got a picture for you. They're actual Jesus action figures. Did you know that? You can buy Jesus dolls. Check that out. That is on some desk in some cubicle at some call center somewhere in the country. Some of us, we're following that. We've entered into a contract with Jesus. If, if, if Jesus thinks exactly what you do, then you're following yourself. If Jesus' politics is the same as your politics, you're just following your tribal political party, not Jesus. Because Jesus is going to frustrate you no matter who you are. He is an equal opportunity frustrator. There's no problem frustrating you. He frustrates the Sadducees. He frustrates the Pharisees. He frustrates the Jewish people. He frustrates people all around, even his own hometown. They call the man demon-possessed. He frustrates. Thomas had a certain vision of how Jesus was supposed to act. Even though he had just heard the gospel preached. He heard it. Jesus is alive. We saw the man. He is risen. The tomb is empty. But Jesus hadn't quite fit Thomas's preconceived vision of what he thought to be true. And for many of us, when it comes to doubt, often we're wrestling with the fact that maybe, just maybe, Jesus doesn't fit into our preconceived vision. 
and he will surprise you the rest of your life. Because it takes a lifetime to learn someone. I'm still getting to know Jordan. Some of you are still getting to know friends that you've known for decades. It takes a lifetime. If it takes a lifetime with a friend or a spouse, it will certainly take a lifetime with Jesus. Now, his biggest contention and why he won't believe is that he needed to feel in order to believe. He had to feel in order to believe. I won't believe unless I feel. I won't believe unless I experience. I won't put my faith in you unless I touch you. The word believe in the Greek is pistuo, and it's the verb form for faith, but faith doesn't actually have a verb form, so it's believe. It's believe. I won't believe unless I touch you. And another temptation that we face is thinking. Lost feeling equals lost faith. It's a temptation. Lost the feeling, I clearly lost the faith. It's not true. First off, you're human. You never lose faith. You're trusting in someone or something. But just because you lost feeling doesn't mean you lost faith. Faith must be chosen even when sometimes we don't feel. And some of you aren't feelers. And so you actually have a hard time with charismatic worship. You have a hard time with expressing how you feel to God because you're like, I don't even know how I feel. I'm just here, present. I think mathematically. I think like in a linear fashion. I I don't know about that. So you wrestle because for a lot of us, we've been presented that feeling is faith. And that's not true at all. Jesus isn't an object to be touched. He is a person to know and become like. We have, all of us, too many friends in their 20s or 30s who had a real experience with the real Jesus on Thursday night at camp in 2007. A lot of friends like this, man. Real encounter, real experience with the living God when they were 14, 15 years old. Real. But then over over time, um, enter into a a, a phase of doubt. Some even move into a a phase of, of deconstruction, leading to walking away altogether. Often not knowing who or what they're walking toward. All that to say, feeling Jesus is not enough to follow Jesus over the long haul. Experiencing Jesus only is not enough to produce resilient faithfulness for a lifetime. You need to feel, and I want to feel. I'm a feeler. Hug me, Jesus. Please hug me. I want tangible presence. I want glory. But I don't always experience that, always. Because Jesus is not a genie. He's a person. And just experiencing alone will not produce faithfulness over the long haul. Swoboda says in his book that experience is not a vaccine for doubt. If I can just experience again, it will come and go. It will come and go. Thomas, by the way, had seen it all. He'd already seen the dead rise a couple of times. He'd seen the miracles. He'd seen healing. He had seen way more than any of you. Probably most of us combined. He had seen it all. He had the ultimate experience with Jesus, an internship for three years with the creator of the world. He's like, I won't believe unless I can touch him. Experience isn't enough. So missing out doesn't mean it isn't true. And just because Jesus doesn't fit into your box doesn't mean he isn't a risen king. So missing out doesn't mean it isn't true. And just because Jesus doesn't fit into your box doesn't mean he isn't a risen king. So then what happens next in the story might be the most intriguing aspect of the entire narrative. Verse 26 says, Eight days later, Eight days! 
days later. Jesus is not in a rush to get to Thomas. Some of us think that Jesus was like, oh, is he going to believe? Oh, God, please, please believe, please. Nope, doesn't happen. Dude waits eight days on Thomas. He's not anxious. And then he walks in later and just says, peace be with you. And you're like, what in this world, Jesus? Talk about non-anxious presence. Like, he is so differentiated. Like, let's use all the terms. He has got it. He's waiting. He's not in a rush. And let me tell you something, friend. If you're in that season right now, he's not in a rush. He's not biting on his nails. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? They're 25 and barely holding on for dear life. What are they going to do? Oh, gosh. They had a horrible experience as a kid in church. What are they going to do? He's not doing that. Jesus postures himself constantly in invitation. Compassion, as well as challenge, which we actually see in the text. So we notice the gap. Thomas has to wait. He has to wait. Thomas has to sit in his doubt. And and we know it was eight days later, but for Thomas... Having to be around all the dudes that are talking all week long about seeing the risen Jesus, and he has to hear about it? Some of us are in that season, and we hear testimonies of our friends experiencing Jesus, and we're like, shut up. Gosh, stop talking about how great church was. I'm sick of it, man. Does that re- You don't have to raise your hand, but does that resonate with some of you? If I hear one more testimony of God's goodness, I'm going to slap someone in the face. <laughs> I've been there. Trust me. I, I get it. He has to wait. He has to hear it. He has to sit in his doubt. He had to sit in his questions all week long. He had to hear about the risen Jesus, whom he hadn't personally experienced. And Thomas had to wrestle. He had to sit, listen to this, in the crucible between what is real and what he felt was real. Between subjective experience and objective reality. Between feeling and fact. He sat in between those worlds for eight days in the tension. And this is actually very important for us in 2023. Because I think sitting in the questions over time actually makes us deeper people. It makes your root system that much stronger to sit in the questions to sit in the doubt, to wait, to wrestle, process. In fact, I actually think a better way of articulating deconstruction is to say I'm processing doubt. I'm waiting in my questions. We know nothing of waiting in our time. We know nothing of being patient in our time. Google has all but eliminated our ability to wrestle with hard questions. Because used to, when you had a question, you actually had to go to someone. Or go to a library. You had to read a book that was longer than 140 characters. Alexa and Siri have become the pastors of our generation. And I'm not surprised why people rapidly deconstruct. Rapidly. Yet, Thomas actually waits. He sits in these questions. A.J. Swoboda says, impatient thinkers are slow to follow Jesus. Notice the play on words. Impatient thinkers are slow to follow Jesus. We must practice what he calls slow theology, to slowly process, to work through questions over a lifetime. In the history of the church, theologians would wrestle their entire lifetime with these questions and how these microphones constantly mess up in Jesus' name. Come on. 
The enemy doesn't want to hear this today. But we've got to be able to wrestle. Again, thinkers throughout history wrestled their entire lifetime with some of these questions. And some of you have done this so well. God, thank you, Lord. Thank you. That's awesome. Some of you have wrestled really, really well. And you continue to wrestle. I continue to wrestle. And some of us haven't. We don't do slow theology well. We jump to conclusions in a couple of weeks because of a couple of videos or a couple of podcasts. But we've got to be willing to work slowly over time. I, I think most people deconstructing guys, to be honest, really are just disappointed. Truly. And, and one of two things. Either A, they're disappointed in the church. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Disappointed in the church. Or disappointed in how hard it is to follow Jesus. Some of us had an encounter. A week later, we got baptized. Jumped in full on. 18 years old. Jumped right on in. And maybe we didn't take the time to count the cost. Maybe. And some of us have seen some very hard, I would even say demonic, sinful activity in churches. But most of us, if we're truly honest, we're just disappointed. What we expected to be true didn't live up to expectation. Or maybe for some of us, the cross is just too heavy. And trusting that there's life in the cross is seemingly unbearable. Or some of us are like, is there more than this? Is this all there is? Just program after program. Always interrupting my schedule, doing things with church. You know, is it just church? Most people are, are navigating this. But yet Jesus isn't impatient. He is very patient and waiting with us through it, even in your disappointment. Because I think he wants to surprise some of you again. Um, now, where we, have, where we have struggled as the people of God and as the church in the West, especially in the South, is creating space for questions. Just because a person asks a question doesn't make them a heretic. And I want to be a community that creates space for questions. Ask questions. Bring all of them. Matter of fact, if you have questions, I would love to dialogue. And often when people do have questions, we don't actually get consent from the person to speak into their life. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We have to give consent to one another. So some of us need to ask, hey, can I, can I get your consent to share some thoughts? If they say no, just let them process. Just listen. So we need to allow questions. But for those who have a lot of questions, we also need to be okay with old answers. We have to be okay with old responses as well. Do you know how many questions that Jesus was actually asked in the gospel story? 187 questions. You know how many he answered directly? Two. You're like, I thought you were smart, Jesus. You've got all the answers to life's questions. I see billboards now. you got questions. The Bible's got answers. I'm like, well, Jesus does it. You know? He's letting me down. But I think there's something to that. You know why? Bad questions get bad answers. Sometimes we don't like the answer because we didn't ask the right question. How often have parents in this room with toddlers said, my son is so curious and inquisitive. I love their inquisitive nature. They're intrigued with everything. They love rocks. They love eating rocks. They love pointing at the sky. They love to draw. And let's be honest, a kid's drawing is horrendous. It's not pretty, but we love it for some reason. We love their curiosity. However, I also know parents sometimes who say, if that kid asked me that question one more time, 
I'm going to scream. Or in private, and I know this is the case, at least my testimony, maybe you're a better parent than me, although my daughter can't even talk yet, so I'm preparing myself. I know there are parents on the back side are talking, and they're like, man, like Joe is asking some dumb questions. Why is he asking those questions? We love the curiosity. We love the questions. But sometimes we are honest and we say, it's kind of a dumb question. It's a silly question. There are dumb questions. I just want us to know. I can prove it to you. When we say things like, why is blank? Or why does blank? You are presupposing fact that may or may not be true. So if this is actually not true, then the question following it might actually be a dumb question. So we have to think through the questions that we ask. Create space and be okay with old answers. Um, also, quick note, um, deconstruction, guys, isn't unique to Christianity. It is not unique to the last five years. Deconstruction is not unique to your Instagram feed or TikTok. It is not, all right? Its origins actually are in postmodern French philosophy that date back to Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who actually had disagreements their entire lifetime. And sometimes how we define deconstruction actually contradicts its original meaning. Derrida actually would say that deconstruction is not something that we do, but something we experience in everyday life. So when we say I'm deconstructing, you're actually not even using the word correctly. It's not unique to Christianity. It actually happens in every single worldview across the board. Thomas Nagel, atheistic philosopher at NYU, constructing the secular narrative in the materialistic worldview. Jordan Peterson, the most polarizing academic in all of the North American landscape, deconstructing ideas in the secular world. Anthony Flew, who was an academic atheist for years, a scientist, on his deathbed denounced much of what he believed to be true. Alistair McGrath was an atheistic theologian and philosopher, and eventually he comes to know Jesus. It's not unique to Christianity. It might be unique to Christianity in Greensboro, North Carolina, but not across the world. It's not. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis was famous for saying that atheists cannot be too careful of their reading because there are traps everywhere. So if deconstruction is your primary mode of existence today and your drive for living, I do think it will ultimately lead to deconstructing yourself by default. The temptation of the believer is to doubt and the temptation of the doubter is to believe. G.K. Chesterton had this to say, in dealing with the arrogant asserter of doubt, it is not the right method to tell him to stop doubting. It is rather the right method to tell him to go on doubting, to doubt a little more, to doubt every day newer and wilder things in the universe, until at last, by some strange enlightenment, he may begin to doubt himself. Eventually, the questioner starts questioning their questions. And does G.K. Chesterton not look like he's in some sort of indie alternative rock band? I mean, Arcade Fire, local natives, that's, he's in the band, I'm pretty sure. What, that's some awesome hair. Anyway, um, eventually it will happen. I'm going to close with this. Um, but I got some thoughts to share. We have baby dedication, so bear with me. Um, there are, I think, healthy forms of deconstruction. Some of you need to go through it. You need to. So you just heard a pastor say that. All right, be encouraged. But there are also unhealthy forms. Let's just be honest, unhealthy forms. All of us have inherited a certain construct or a plausibility structure that's been given to us. So we should evaluate the validity of those constructs that have been given to us. The question then, though, becomes, on what basis are we comparing and analyzing these constructs? Jesus deconstructs the law in the Sermon on the Mount. But he uses the scriptures in order to do so. If you did not know, slavery was ended because people actually started reading the entire Bible, not just some of it. 
whether you know this or not, slavery and the slave Bible was a deconstructed Bible to preserve slavery in the antebellum period. The Reformation was a deconstruction of abuses in the Roman Catholic Church regarding salvation and the selling of indulgences. Deconstruction is a part of the human experience and there are healthy forms of it. However, what we tend to do is to deconstruct on the basis of culture, on the basis of modern ideals, usually as a way of accommodation. Yet, here's the problem. Culture shifts and changes about as fast as you can refresh a computer screen. It's constantly changing. So it kind of creates an instability. And another thing, contextualization of the gospel and deconstruction are two totally different things. To contextualize the gospel is different than to deconstruct the gospel. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, we tend to think that faith equals certainty. And to certainty makes a lot of people in the fundamentalist space cringe. But there's not. Faith does not equal certainty. It's nowhere in the scriptures. Nowhere. Faith is confidence. I don't have absolute certainty that Jesus resurrected, but I have confidence. I have confidence. So when someone says, you're not, you don't have faith because you're not certain, I'm like, it's not what faith is. Faith is not certainty. It's just confidence. It's, in the language of John Ortberg, it's strategic uncertainty. That's what faith actually is. Also, this is going to be a little hard, okay? Keep in mind, to deconstruct the Bible is to deconstruct a library written predominantly by brown-skinned, poor, and oppressed people, and a faith that has and is giving hope to a non-Eurocentric community and communities all across the global landscape. So be careful, friends, not to use your privilege at the expense of dismissing testimonies of people all across the world. Deconstruction is a Western privilege that we exercise. 35 million professing Christians died for the faith in the last 100 years. Don't dismiss it simply by throwing around deconstruct, deconstruction too loosely. Deconstruction without reconstruction, ultimately, guys, it leaves you and I without a home. It may be of interest for a period of time to get your frustration out by knocking down walls and pulling down the ceiling, but if you aren't careful, you will be caught in a storm with no shelter or refuge. So my encouragement today is wrestle. To do what Josh McNall recommends, and that's to say, perhaps. If you're the dogmatist today, perhaps there are some things that actually might be wrong in your ideology. If you're the doubter, perhaps there might be some concrete truths that have existed for millennia. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. Howard Thurman, someone I love, says, it is in the waiting, brooding, lingering, tearing, timeless moments that the essence of the religious experience becomes most fruitful. So, at the end of the story, Thomas makes his best decision yet, and probably the primary advice, I think, we are to glean from this story. Verse 26 says, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was there. He's like, dude, I've been in this waiting period all week long. I'm not missing out again. I'm going to be there. I'm clearing out my schedule. I'm present. I'm here. In his doubt, friends, Thomas chose to be with them. Not in isolation, not on his own, not on the computer screen late at night on a YouTube search. With the people of God. Now, scholars believe that they were together again because this was Sunday. And it was their first church gathering celebrating the resurrection. They were together on Sunday morning. 
And Thomas decides to be with them. So in your doubt today, and I know all of us have our doubts, the two best things I think that you can do are to be patient, be patient, and to be with. Be patient and be with. And that's, being with takes a risk. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. But Thomas, Thomas, that's awkward. Thomas chose to be with them in celebration, even though he had not yet believed. He chose to be in the gathering, even though he had not yet believed. Even though he was doubtful, he chose to be with. And it was then at that moment that Jesus just again casually shows up in this room. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. The original language connotes the idea of uh, reaching or even to place your burdens, to endure or to bear patiently. And look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. The original language could also mean to pour out or to empty. He empties himself on Jesus. All of his doubt on Jesus. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. So, Jesus doesn't minister with answers. He ministers through his scars. He ministers through his broken body. And the etymology of the word doubt in the French means to be afraid. And what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. His spoken word is peace be with you. If you are doubting today, I think he's looking at you and saying, peace be with you. Because the way of the doubter is full of anxiety, frustration, fatigue, and he says, peace be with you. As Thomas touches Jesus, he doesn't just call him friend. He doesn't call him teacher. He doesn't even say, welcome back. He falls to the ground and worships him, eliciting the highest, as I said, Christological claim, my Lord and my God. That's what it means to believe. I have this artwork, a couple pieces of artwork real quick for you to see from Ruben Ferreira. I love this portrait of Doubting Thomas on the left, the facial expression. And then this sculpture on the right is in Florence, Italy of Doubting Thomas that was done about 500 years ago in the 14, 1500s. My Lord and my God, he worships. He worships. Thomas's story doesn't end in doubt. It is simply a process he goes through. Doubt Doubting is a process that we go through. Deconstruction, if done well, is a process that we go through, leading to reconstruction. It isn't his destination. His destination actually ends up with him on his face in humble worship. Now, come to find out, just a couple of uh, decades later, Thomas will take the gospel to India and become the father of Christianity in India. And right now, you can actually go to St. Thomas Basilica in Chennai, India. Because someone was willing to wait and process and walk through and eventually is compelled to take the gospel to India to where there are now 26 million Christians in the country. This didn't happen during the colonial period. It happened a couple decades after this moment. Some of you are doubting. Some of you are deconstructing. But I think some of your days of evangelism, witness are ahead of you wait, and if you move forward with humility. You can, um, you, can, you can deconstruct, analyze, and break down certain ideas, and, and sometimes rightly so. We need to deconstruct wrong ideas. But one thing that you can't do is deconstruct a person. You can't. He was already deconstructed on Friday. Adrian von Kahn and Susan Muto say, the risen Christ is the therapist of body and soul. He is both the healer we seek and the medicine that we need. Jesus' scars are what healed Thomas's doubt. 
And I think that his scars are healing people today. They are certainly healing mine. I don't have certainty. I was on the way here this morning in the car. I started to tear up in prayer because I was thinking to myself, I don't have certainty, but I have confidence and thank you for your scars. I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Jesus's scars are what healed Thomas's doubt. In the final line of Geit's poem, the wounded God whose hands or whose wounds, excuse me, are healing mine. His wounds are meant to heal your wounds of doubt and deconstruction today.